friends, it's Jeff. We now have four years of Around the Circle content, ranging from the basic to the very advanced, but housed in our feed are 40 or so deep dives into movie characters. To make these episodes more bingeable, more shareable, more findable, we have started a new podcast feed, which we called Movie Typing. So you can find Movie Typing on iTunes, on Spotify, on all the places that you get your podcasts. Uh, we believe that by thinking hard about the personalities of movie characters, we can understand the types better. In the weeks ahead, we're going to be releasing all 40 of our remastered recordings. We're going to continue to add new content to that podcast on a monthly basis. We'll be doing fresh deep dives. And we're kicking off that feed with these next two episodes where we discuss the best representations. Dare we say we go around the circle with the best representations of the nine types in all of film. So thank you so much and enjoy. Yep. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Road. Where we're going, we don't need road. I feel the need for aid for speed. Ow! Good morning, Vietnam! What country are you from? What? What? what ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? All right, all right, all right. These guys are 11. How do you like their maps? The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. You're going to need a bigger boat. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. We love some movie characters, and sometimes the best way to get into the characters we love most is to dig deep into their motives, their calling, their sense of self, talk about what they really want. This is movie typing where we select, engage, and unveil the intentions and drive of the greatest characters on film. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and personality typing expert. Hello. Boss. Hey. Doing our deep dive into the greatest of the characters. All the great characters. I don't know if the, this is a question worth asking. Is there any character that just embodies the type more than anybody else you could explain enneagram just by talking about yeah. the the one that comes to the top of my head right away is uh tony stark is a three bang uh yeah robert downey jr specifically robert downey jr playing tony stark as a three is is just magnificent what's hilarious is i just reworked the podcast where we did this uh-huh. and we spent at least two minutes talking about mistyping on tony stark from other folks uh, this sure. person thinks yeah. they're a seven. This person thinks they're an eight. This yeah. person thinks they're a five. Nope. And you were you were indignant about <laughs> the fact that somebody would think that Tony Stark was a five. He's just not. He's not. He's just just not. because he's smart, you said. Yeah. <laughs> the quintessential for me is a five, and it would be Spock. I think Spock's a fantastic okay. example of uh, Nimoy's Spock. Yeah. I prefer the concrete, the graspable, the provable. Here's a here's a character that has a personality type mm -hmm. that's very different from other people's types. But there are people that we know that have those Spock characteristics to them. Sure, yeah, they're robots, and we can jump in there. <laughs> <laughs> that's called a Vulcan, Mister. Oh, right. Sorry, I I meant Vulcan, not robots. Green blooded, not no blooded. <laughs> <laughs> 
We're picking up from the fours going to the fives. We talked about uh, what? We talked about ones, twos, threes, and fours last time. Where fours want to be significant, and threes want to claim, and twos want to be wanted, and ones want to be good. Fives. Fives want to be competent. They want to know. Uh, they direct their energies towards accumulating knowledge, focusing on areas that matter to them they think are vital. What's your take on on fives? Yeah, I think that's that's good. There's there's an observational nature to uh, to fives. They they want to sort of like be unattached to the things. They want to observe it from the outside, and you know they put their emotions away. They put their their uh, attachments away, and they they're trying to have an unbiased viewpoint so that so that they can understand things more clearly because you know we all bring our opinions to everything that we observe and and fives are trying to set to remain detached and and see things from an unbiased point of view and and so that that they can sort of protect themselves from anything that they if they're not attached to things they're safe and and they have their you know their private space they want to be behind the mirror watching people have their conversations. They can't see. Yeah, one way glass. Them in in the <laughs> in the dark room. Well, in, in future episodes on movie typing, we're going to talk about Hannibal Lecter in depth. Uh, when we tackle the Shawshank Redemption with Villain Nines, we spend a little bit of time on Andy Dufresne mm-hmm. as a five, the hero of Shawshank Redemption. Uh, I really want to talk about Jaws at some point, and I think Martin Brody's a great example of a five, somebody sure. who is, uh, his whole storyline is overcoming fear, but he is studying quite a bit about sharks and about you know what he needs to do prior to jumping in the boat. Right. Mentioned Spock, but perhaps even more archetypical uh, than even Spock is one Sherlock Holmes. Mm, yeah. Big fan of the Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. The uh, With the exception of, what, is it Will Ferrell who plays him in that terrible movie? I meticulously inspected every nook and cranny of that study, hunting for clues. Much like a, a panther stalks its prey. Other than that, <laughs> I feel like I have yet to see a bad presentation of Sherlock Holmes. It's true. Just a, a great character in general. Yeah. Yeah. And always a five. Yeah. I would be curious if Robert Downey Jr.'s take is a five. He he adds some seven flavor in there. That's what I think. But I still think it's really five-ish. Yeah. The way that they portray him sort of studying the thing before it happens mm-hmm. and then the thought process of like the, the preparation of coming into like the fights and stuff, I think it's really five-ish. Alongside Martin Brody's start studying sharks. Yep. Downey Jr., Think yep. through uh, his ninja moves. Yep. First, distract target. Then block his blind jab. Counter with cross to left cheek. Discombobulate. Dazed, he'll attempt wild haymaker. Employ elbow block and body shot. Block feral left. Weaken right jaw. Break cracked ribs. Traumatize solar plexus. Dislocate jaw entirely. In summary, ears ringing, jaw fractured, three ribs cracked, four broken, diaphragm hemorrhaging, physical recovery six weeks, full psychological recovery six months, capacity to spit it back of head, neutralized. Bang, bang, bang. Valuing of knowledge and data. Uh, you see this all over this 
character. I'm just going to spit out a handful of, I mean, this is one of the more quotable TV series. <laughs> it just, right. There's so many zingers. Impossible to sustain a smoking habit in London these days. Bad news for brain work. What's good news for breathing? Oh, breathing. Breathing's boring. Lots of language in this show about how he sees his own mind and where he's storing things mm-hmm. and what counts as relevant data and what doesn't. Yeah. Like there's there's one episode where he doesn't know uh, that it was something simple like the earth goes around the sun. Look, it doesn't matter to me who's prime minister or uh-huh. who's sleeping with who. Although the earth goes around the sun. Oh yeah. God, that again. It's not important. Not important. It's primary school stuff. How can you not know that? But if I ever did, I've deleted it. Deleted it? Listen, this is my hard drive, and it only makes sense to put things in there that are useful. Really useful. Ordinary people fill their heads with all kinds of rubbish, and that makes it hard to get at the stuff that matters. Do you see? But it's the solar system. Oh, hell, what does that matter? So we go around the sun, and we went around the moon, or round and round the garden like a teddy bear. It wouldn't make any difference. All that matters to me is the work. What counts as knowledge, I think, is great. This is the observational quality of these things are worthy of knowing, and yet everyone skims over them. That's a huge mm-hmm. part of the foundation of this show, Yeah, uh, is him not being able to understand how oblivious everyone is to what's in front of them. Right. But what's in front of them he values. He's like, well, this is the thing that actually matters. Right. These things that you all take for granted that you don't even notice anymore. This speaks everything if you can see the bigger picture. It's a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Yeah, there's a, a really interesting thing about fives that that when they present information, like n- not only do they want to observe from sort of the outside, but also when they present information, they're not attached to it. They're not attached to an outcome. They're, they, they want to just say, here is the information. You come to the correct co- conclusion. Um, and and if, they, if the data points in a direction they don't like, that doesn't matter. They follow the data philosopher that I am, I have to point out this is entirely wrong in terms of this character. This character does not accept that there might be ghosts. He is ostracizing some theories. Sure. Um, I suppose the most famous line from him. Once you rule out the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be true. I suppose his predisposition, though, is towards natural... You know, he's a he's a modern man. He's a scientific man. Right. Who's speaking to sometimes a overly mystical culture right he would like if we were able to have a conversation about it and he would say something along the lines of ghosts aren't real but if they were and there were evidence i would change my mind about this yes that's correct yeah i'd be curious if he i can't think of anything off the top of my head where he just dismisses out of hand supernatural explanations but i suppose that first robert downey jr movie Mm-hmm. has that element right like robert downey jr is never actually considering that the you know that the villain has magical powers right like that is an option he might have magical powers but sure. he doesn't think no. that he's going in saying now nah, let's figure let's let's go with the natural explanation first right the abominable bride is all about that as well yeah there yeah. you go well worth watching if you by the way if you haven't seen these like treat yourself 
And everyone kind of, you know, dislikes the direction that it goes in the third season, but I'm still a fan. Was there a third season? Yeah. I'd, the nah, whole thing with, her, with his sister? I think you're lying. No, they, <laughs> it exists, and I really liked it. I may be the only one on the planet, but I really liked it. Last episode was one with a person falling off of a building somewhere. I believe believe that was the end of the show. The Ragnarok fall. (laughs) That's where, like, the original uh, writer, uh, Conan Doyle, really did want to kill the character. Mm, Sure. And uh, just got so much hell that he had to bring the character back. (laughs) This is essentially what misery is about when Stephen King has to do the same thing. Sure. Which we talk about in our Villains Ones episode. Yep. In the first episode of uh, the Sherlock series, he turns to a condescending cop. He says, I'm not a psychopath, Anderson. I'm a high-functioning sociopath. Do your research. It, it's such a good way to, to show, like, like, this is someone who knows exactly who he is and has no, like, he, he doesn't feel bad about being a sociopath. But he does get upset when people get it wrong. Right. Like, he cares more about accuracy than feelings. And that's that's just where it is. It's exactly it. And it's also, I'm observing you. I, you need to, tr- to treat me the same. You right. need to understand who I am as well, because right. you're screwing this up. Right. Speaking of emotions. All emotions, and in particular love, stand opposed to the pure, cold reason I hold above all things. A wedding is, in my considered opinion, nothing short of a celebration of all that is false and specious and irrational and sentimental in this ailing and morally compromised world. Today we honor the Death Watch Beetle that is the doom of our society and in time one feels certain our entire species. (laughs) There's one scene where these kids have come to him with like a problem and they're talking about how this person they cared about has died and they say... He wouldn't let us see Granddad when he was dead. Is that because he's gone to heaven? People don't really go to heaven when they die. They're taken to a special room and burned. Factually correct and deeply unsoothing. <laughs> like this, this is also a really good example of like, like fives are certain, like a lot of types are certain that the way that they see the world is the right way. And fives having detach themselves from sentiment and emotions and and attachment of to the outcome they are that much more certain that the way that they see the world is accurate and therefore they have no qualms about saying things that are deeply hurtful like that he is utterly dismissing the idea of heaven to children right he might be wrong about this, but he is so sure that he is right that he's totally fine saying it to kids. Fives aren't a feeling repressed number. No. I think it's it's the unattachment. It's it's feelings are something to be processed and managed. And and my feelings are something to be to be dealt with entirely on my own. And and I also think that that Sherlock is a is an example of someone who is a little bit too into his unhealthy security space. Yeah. Where he's com- he he's totally fine coming out and and saying the things that hurt other people's feelings because he's leaning a little bit too much on his eight. Yeah. When he's in security and he's got the data feels secure. Yep. Once you're, you feel secure then yeah, you can take some of the negatives. Yeah, and he he just wants to correct other people when they're wrong. Yep. And they're wrong about heaven. 
in the first episode, he gets news uh, of a of another person being murdered in uh, in his town in London. Mm-hmm. Brilliant! Yes! Ah, four serial suicides and now a note. Ah, oh, it's Christmas. Goes goes towards values. Like, what what is it that he's really in this for? Right, the puzzle. He wants to figure out the puzzle. He wants the puzzle. Yeah. Gets very uh, well. He goes into seven space. Just speaking about the lines, he goes into seven space when he doesn't have a puzzle to work on. Right. A lot of his addictive qualities come out. Um, self. And is it? Do sevens become self abusive? I suppose that could be the low side of five, but it's, it's his drug addiction is is all over that character. When it's he, not intentionally self abusive, but it the escape is abuse. Yeah, yeah. Talk about fives and and drug use. Yeah, the the um, especially in stress place, which like when when Sherlock doesn't have a puzzle to solve or something to work on, he he moves very quickly into that stress space, and and he grabs onto seeks out anything that will distract him um, because he's he's so intelligent and he's so observant that that everything is it's sort of like normal stuff is easy for him and and so he's looking for distraction he's looking for something that will take away the sort of numbness of mm-hmm. of his experience and and he replaces that with another kind of numbness one that that sort of dulls his brain are you doing? Bored. What? Bored! No. Bored! Bored! So you take it out on the wall? Oh, the wall had it coming. This is, I think, about not really having control of, of what I can see, what I can understand, how my mind operates. And so that stress move is about seeking out something to, to cover it up. It's about running away from something that I can't comprehend, which is boredom or m- my own feelings or, or the, this emotional experience that I'm having or whatever, whatever thing is, is something that needs to be run away from. Yeah. They, they run toward whatever will help them escape. And it's oftentimes, especially because of the, the sort of nihilism that lies on that line between five and seven, it's oftentimes self-destructive behavior. That's the thing I thought was worth talking about. The nihilism that, that fives can feel yeah. comes out in these places yeah. as well. The Your loved one has been taken to a small room and burned. That's saying the, the data devoid of value and meaning. Right. You know. Because there is no meaning. Right. Meaning is not an observable quality of the natural world. Right. And if you reduce everything to just the natural world, you are left with a meaningless process right you're ordinary you're on the side of the angels oh i may be on the side of the angels but don't think for one second that i am one of them yeah i like that he's very open about not trying to be a good guy yeah like so many of our of our stories the 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 ones we like whatever it's like watching people trying to be good and that is not who Sherlock Holmes is, at least not in this portrayal. Like he's he is just plain not trying to be good. He's trying to observe and understand and just get through things. 
And part of his observation is that there is no such thing as good or bad. It's it's all choices. It's all, and eventually it all works out to sort of meaninglessness. In a hundred years, nobody will remember Sherlock Holmes. So it doesn't matter if I'm good or bad. Brought up being feeling repressed before. There is something about fives where... They're an action-repressed number, not a feeling-repressed number. They can observe their own feelings, can observe themselves mm-hmm. quite clearly, yeah? Yeah. And that may... Like, it's not that they're devoid of feelings. It's just that they, in addressing feelings, have a different kind of context for that, their own feelings and the feelings of others, and perhaps even a prescriptive context of how people should feel about the world that they observe. And you're an idiot if you don't. All of it is still at a distance. Yeah. Like they, they have, everyone has feelings and, and they have theirs, but they usually don't experience them until like a few days later. And then they have to process it from a distance mm. so that they can understand it. Yeah. Whereas three sevens and eights are setting their feelings aside. Right. Fives will engage their feelings just later great line where someone comes to Sherlock to talk about his friends, plural. Sherlock says, I don't have friends. I just have one. Mm. Beautiful line. Yeah. But also very aware of who he is in the world. And unaware of how other people see him, too. Oh, there you go. I bet you other people think that Sherlock is one of their friends in, in right. their circle. Yeah. Uh, in in just this this show... The landlady, which I've forgotten her name. Um, Miss Hudson. Molly, the cop, Greg. Is uh, his first name Greg? Is that why you're calling yourself Greg? That's his name, is it? Yes. Something like that. Lestrade. Yeah, Lestrade. Uh, like all of these people would consider themselves Sherlock's friend, but he only considers John. Yeah. And, and does not have the sort of awareness of how other people view him has perhaps criteria for what it would mean to be a friend. Probably. And only John has actually risen to that. Well, and also how he feels about the other person. Yeah. True. Yeah. It's one thing to say, I am this person's friend. It's another thing to say, this person is my friend. It's a good call. Mentioned it earlier, another five that we tackle is Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Worth highlighting elements of five. Just in that last fantastic dialogue in the movie, in it, uh, Lecter has escaped. He calls Clary Starling after her graduation, and she has just successfully captured a killer. Don't bother with the trace. I won't be on long enough. Where are you, Dr. Lecter? I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. The world's more interesting with you in it. So you take care now to extend me the same courtesy. You know I can't make that promise. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Get it? Because he's a cannibal. (laughs) (laughs) We see Lecter's nemesis. He's in the distance. Who He's clearly like gone to some foreign country and he's trying to hide. Right. Uh, apparently didn't do a very good job. What a fool. Uh, another favorite line from the uh, from our deep dives is uh, 
TJ, I believe in that episode, says Chilton sucks at least five <laughs> times. <laughs> he sucks. He's so awful. <laughs> Anything you see there? Uh, there is, uh, again, the observational quality. Mm-hmm. Like, he's answering questions before she gets a chance to ask them several times. Like, several of his lines are basically him, like, preempting the question that she's not asking. Exactly. Yeah. I suppose that goes alongside Jaws and Sherlock Holmes of knowing the what the attack is going to look like if mm-hmm. you put yourself on the line. Right. Already played that out. My favorite is that the world's a more interesting place with you in it. He knows that Clarice is actually a threat mm-hmm. to his safety, to him per- potentially going back to a very hellish prison environment. Right. But he's not going to kill her because the world is more interesting with her in it. Right. And even knowing the potential of like the future possibility of them meeting again could end with one of them killing the other Mm -hmm. or them killing each other. But he's okay with that because he still prefers the world with her in it because it's more interesting. There's also a transactional nature here of I have an Mm -hmm. asset, you have an asset. My asset is I will not right. come after you. I want to make a bargain. It's not a relational thing. Like we, we might see with Vito Corleone, him making pu- pushing into the relationship in order to get what he wants. This mm-hmm. is 100% transaction. I won't chase you. You don't chase me. This will be the deal. Right. It's not a favor. It's a deal. It's a deal. Yeah. Mentioned him a couple times, but I'd love to highlight one Martin Brody uh scene from Jaws, it is one of those places that he, his character is exposed here because he's drunk and, uh, you know, fives that can hold back their feelings and are hard to observe sometimes. In this scene, a lot of his inner life is coming out. Right. Sometimes they, they slip a little. He has seen a handful of people eaten by a shark in his town that he oversees. He's afraid of the water. He has had a mother come to him and blame him for her child's death because he didn't shut down the beach or tell people what was up. And he's been processing this, his own fear of the water, his own responsibility to this town. Richard Dreyfus comes over with a bottle of wine. <laughs> they open it. Sure. Yeah. He yeah. pours the entire bottle of wine into a glass and starts drinking. <laughs> but his wife says, Martin hates boats. <sighs> Martin hates water. Martin Martin sits in his car when we go on the ferry to the mainland. I guess it's a childhood thing. It's a, there's a clinical name for it, isn't there? I Drowning. <laughs> <laughs> and he asks him, and Hopper's a shark expert. Listen, is it true that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about ten feet from the beach? Yeah. And that before people started to swim for recreation, I mean, before sharks knew what they were missing, that a lot of these attacks weren't reported. That's right. Now, this shark that, that, that swims alone... Rogue. What's it called? Rogue. Rogue. Rogue, yeah. Now, this guy, he, he keeps swimming around in a place where the feeding is good until the food supply is gone, right? It's called territoriality. It's just theory that I happen to agree with. Then why don't we have one more drink and go down and cut that shark open? 
some of the local townspeople have killed a shark. It's a tiger shark, and it's a small shark, and it's not the shark that that ate these people. And Brody knows it, yeah, right. But he's going to cut it open the shark to see if anything, you know, if there's a body inside. Right. Yeah. Because that's how you find out if shark has eaten something. You look at its stomach. And his wife says, Martin, can you do that? And he says, I can do anything. I'm the chief of police. It's my, one of my favorite identity lines in a movie, which I love. Mm-hmm. It's getting your head around all of the things, all the data, processing this. And there's a heavy filter of fear here. Fear for himself, fear for those he serves. That's what I see there. You got thoughts yeah. on this? fear about something that happened a long time ago but he won't tell anyone what that is and he's sort of like put it in this little box to make sure that he's protecting himself from it and and yeah just gathering all the information to be able to deal with that fear five's using past tools to address their future fears he has gone back to pre-swimming for recreation times in his study And just gathering all the information to know how to proceed. Like, if you don't have a clear picture, then how do you know what you're actually looking at? Sometimes you have to zoom out a little bit to get a clearer picture. That's it. Of course, the most famous line uh, from this character is... You're going to need a bigger boat. Which, looking at it through the prism of the Enneagram, that's observation, that's fear, that's there's problem solving taking place. Mm Mm-hmm. It's also like pure data. Yep. Yeah. Data being utilized to overcome his future anxieties. Mm-hmm. If we insist on doing things according to the data, then he would be able to, to do the job, killing the shark. Right. And sidestep the, uh, the potential, well, getting eaten by a shark. <laughs> right. Right. Well, where fives overcome fear through knowledge, sixes overcome fear by surrounding themselves with a reliable tribe with, you know, they align themselves with others. They want safety. They earn it by being faithful to their circle of friends, to their coworkers, to their families, uh, to their rules, to their, to their belief system, to the, to the expectations of their job or whatever else. Uh, we, there's a, handful of great characters here a lot of times they are secondary characters in film uh just given their personality and how story works uh but we might elevate as some of the front and center characters characters like anakin skywalker who we spend a lot of time on in our first star wars episode marty mcfly from the great back to the future films yeah perhaps we haven't talked about this character but i would love your thoughts uh perhaps the most lovable of the sixes is one Bob Wiley from from What About Bob. Mm, okay, yeah. When seeing a new shrink, who asks him what is wrong? Why you know? Why are you here? Why are you in my office? Well, I get dizzy spells, nausea, cold sweats, hot sweats, fever, blisters, difficulty breathing, difficulty swallowing, blurred vision, involuntary trembling. Dead hands, numb lips, fingernail sensitivity, pelvic discomfort. So the real question is, what is the crisis, Bob? What is it that you are truly afraid of? What if my heart stops beating? What if I'm looking for a bathroom, I can't find it? 
and my bladder explodes. The mental spinning that's mm-hmm. going off mm-hmm. and the inability to trust himself. And part of that opening conversation with his doctor is him unveiling that his wife has left him. Sure. Yeah. He has lost his person. His his grounding point. His security blanket. Yeah. Took off. She loves Neil Diamond. It's fair. I understand. <laughs> there are two types of people in this world. Those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't. But I think that uh, that especially that last line I think is is a really great example of of a big part of this process with sixes, which is called chaining. And it's like like what if I'm looking for a bathroom and my bladder explodes? Like like the steps that you have to go through <laughs> to get from problem A to ending B is is just it it's. Mag- the the work that sixes can do in this area is spectacular. Sixes, in order to feel secure, in order to feel, will attach to others who make them feel safe. And right. that's, that is the movie. Right, yeah. Bob has found a new person. Got a little attached. Stalks him to his, what, his family vacation home in right. New Hampshire. Yeah. But also, the target for sixes uh health wise a big target for sixes can just be getting to those spaces where you trust yourself and a lot of the the movie ends up being that's the character journey for bob wiley Mm -hmm. yeah right let's hit star wars perhaps the so one thing about star wars is there's two great six characters and they're very very different there's a strong terrifying character who's a six and there is perhaps the comic relief Weakest character in Star Wars is a six. Let's start with the weak one. Uh, it seems to me C-3PO has that same kind of just anxiety being mm-hmm. verbally processed all the time yeah. side to a six. Yeah, he's he's constantly trying to point out the potential danger of everything. And and I think he, he he's not a good example of this, but I think there are a lot of examples in film that, that you just can't think of because the, the character that is raising the possibility of danger is dismissed or ignored. And like, like they're usually the one that the story is not actually about. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, I think there's a ton of examples of this all over, especially disaster movies. There's always someone who's saying this thing is coming and everyone important ignores that person. Yep. And that person is often a six. The voice of tension. Yeah. This is how the movie starts. He's the very first speaker in all of Star Wars. He says, Did you hear that? They shut down the main reactor. We'll be destroyed for sure. This is madness. We're doomed. There'll be no escape for the princess this time. We're doomed. It's all of us. Yep. And he's even looking out for the ruler, for the, the leader on the ship. Right. But it's clear that he is anxious about his own welfare as well. Yeah, yeah common good, but also himself. Anything we're saying there about like the talk styles of sixes and how they verbally process anxiety? Sure. I'll give you, like, let me actually list a couple of other C-3PO quotes because it's all over these. Come along now, let's find Princess Leia. Between ourselves, I think Master Luke is in considerable danger. Sir, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. Never tell me the odds. 
Master Luxa, pardon me for asking, but what should Arto and I do if we're discovered here? Lock the door. And hope they don't have blasters. <laughs> that isn't very reassuring. It's not wise to upset a Wookiee. But sir, nobody worries about upsetting a droid. It's because a droid don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose. Wookiees are known to do that. I see your point, sir. I suggest a new strategy, R2. Let the Wookiee win. It's like all, all of these are classic lines mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and all aimed at future disasters. And also suggestive. Like it, it's it, a lot of other, the other types might be more decisive or even prescriptive with how they are trying to look out for the common good. But, mm-hmm. but with sixes, it's, it's usually suggestive because they don't trust themselves. They're saying, what if we did this instead of we should do this? That's a great way to put that. Yeah, the one is going to come in and say that we should all do this because it's right. And the three is going to come in. We should all do this because it's the goal. And the five, as we just talked about, we should all do this because this is what the data says. The six says we should all do this because we're going to get crushed. Right. Right. (laughs) If you keep experimenting with nature, dinosaurs will eat you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the strongest character, arguably, in Star Wars is Darth Vader, a.k.a. One Anakin Skywalker. The the whole of those first six movies is the trajectory of Anakin's life and the life of a six and what happens when fear takes control and how it can have destabilizing, dehumanizing consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And and can push one to like like I, I mentioned earlier, like like we've talked about sixes sort of aligning themselves with some type of hierarchy or system or group and and Vader is such a a good example of like like he completely gives over his allegiance. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just that he's now in the group, it's it's that he has completely devoted himself to an outside power, the Emperor. Yeah. And there's the attaching. Right. All three, all three of these characters—Bob Wiley, C-3PO, Anakin—they all attach to people who will make them feel safe. Right. What is thy bidding, my master? Seems like such a strange line coming from this person who clearly looks like the embodiment of evil and power, and can can cut apart anyone, and yet he has attached himself. Right. And it's a submission. So yeah. not a healthy submission. And even like up until the moment where he he throws the emperor over the into that shaft, like there there's still like he demonstrates that he's not necessarily all in emotionally, mm-hmm. but he has already given his allegiance to this thing, and because of the fidelity of the six, he's he's all in. It's too late. Like stop stop fighting this thing that's inevitable. I've already joined. Yeah. It's the redemption is an attachment story, isn't not that he's attached to the emperor, but he detaches and he attaches to his son because his son has the power to save him. And that's like the redemption there at the end. Yeah. I wouldn't put it that way. I, I think it's, it's more about the, the, the fact of his son helps highlight that like he, his fidelity is not all encompassing when, like at a certain point he can make a choice yeah that's a very way but the the story is him trusting his own strength i suppose at some level right. there right yeah that's a better way to go there i suppose 
his son saving him is the the arguably one of the most famous dialogues in all of film is in Empire where Vader is trying to get Luke to join him. Mm-hmm. That's the attachment I suppose I'm trying to highlight. In Return of the Jedi, he discovers his own strength, his own ability to destroy the Emperor on his own. Right. But in Empire, when he's trying to get Luke to turn to the dark side, that is about trying to harness Luke's power. Mm-hmm. We together, we together can destroy the Emperor. So notice how the this how the dialogue plays out. Luke, you do not yet realize your importance. You have only begun to discover your power. Join me, and I will complete your training. With our combined strength, we can end this destructive conflict and bring order to the galaxy. Housed in that is attachment. It's only Mm -hmm. with our combined strength. Very clear radar for how we need to get in this together in order to, to overcome those things that are wicked and terrible out there, yeah? And also, I am not strong enough on my own. Yep. Doesn't trust himself. That's perfect. That whole dialogue, after the reveal of him as Luke's father, he says, Luke, you can destroy the Emperor. He has foreseen this. It is your destiny. Join me, and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. Again, highlighting a person he can attach to in order Mm -hmm. to escape the enslavement he experiences under Palpatine. Right. And almost like an invitation to replace my ruler with yourself. I don't know that we've talked about this, but I heard this from a six this week. Uh, He talked about being a communal problem solver. Prefers to, where fives would look at the data themselves as an individual. He preferred to have communal solutions to the problems mm-hmm. at hand. And I thought that was right. a good distinction between fives and sixes, both filled with anxiety, both focused on future threats. Yeah. But how you come to the future threat, different. Yep. Last word on sixes. Nothing to add. Sevens. Sevens are motivated to avoid pain. Uh, they do this often by planning stimulating experiences, getting moving. There are proactive investigative types who avoid fear by immersing themselves in constant activity just like fives and sixes very focused on sort of the the things that can go wrong the the things they want to avoid the the fearful things that might happen and and sevens respond by sort of running in the other direction there's Mm -hmm. that life is full of opportunities and enjoyment and different things that can make us happy why would we be stuck in places where we're not happy when we can just go get it somewhere outrunning is a great word there the outrunning looks like a peter pan kind of image right uh, it's not just that they're outrunning but oftentimes they're grabbing people's hands inviting them to think happy thoughts yeah and we're whisking each other away to well, to never, never land. Where we'll never grow up. That's yeah. where we never grow up. That would be terrible. It's all sorts of, <laughs> prior to our podcast, your listener, DJ and I were, were uh, putting together a list of the things that fail on, on bodies as they age, which makes me, <laughs> sevens would not, <laughs> would not engage such a, yep. such a list. Yeah. We'll go where we, where we never grow up. That sounds so much better. No responsibilities. 
<laughs> no mouth guards. <laughs> we might mention people like uh, I like Nacho Libre as a as a seven. Mm, uh, I like Peter Quill, yep. Star Lord from Guardians of the Galaxy. We spend a lot of time in the MCU uh, episodes talking about Peter Quill, who is clearly trying to outrun grief through happy music and new adventures. And never going back to Earth where he's from. Never going back to Earth. Uh, when we tackle Star Wars, Luke Skywalker is a great example of this sort of person. Mm-hmm. A good heroic image of this is uh, Robin Williams as Mr. Keating in Dead Poet Society. Yeah. A mature version of the seven. Yep. Elevating people. You see the elevation and like come stand on this desk, you know, rip this page, rip these pages out of the book, mm-hmm. you know, this, you are invited into a freeing experience of life. Yeah. Do something different. Do, do something unexpected. Do something that breaks the rules and see how much fun it can be. Yep. As a quintessential seven, however, I want to highlight uh, Jason Sadukas's Ted Lasso. Okay. Some of the best seven lines. Believe. Some of the best seven lines have come out of this character recently. <laughs> yeah. Believe. That's right. In what? Doesn't matter. Believe in something. I could list off all of the happy things that's going on with Ted. Yep. But pause for a second and note how the show starts. Ted, when faced with his marriage falling apart, takes a job on a different continent. Yep. He is a successful college football coach, and he changes his job to becoming a soccer coach. Which he knows nothing about. Which he knows nothing about. That'll be fun. He is as far away as you can get from the pain back home, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yep. And nearly everything that he says is just optimistic, pulling others into joy and positivity. This show is endlessly quotable on this front. I do love a locker room. It smells like potential. No, it doesn't, Ted. Gross. <laughs> Nobody thinks it smells like potential. <laughs> and am I getting notes of Axe body spray? Disgusting. <laughs> I've never been embarrassed about having streaks in my drawers. You know, it's it's all part of growing up. It's a great reframing of not being able to wipe correctly. <laughs> you want to talk about reframing? Because that's exactly what that is. Basically looking at something that's ugly or bad or dumb or gross and saying, nah, this will be a story. <laughs> like, we, we, we can make this something worthwhile. Locker rooms smell terrible. Nah, I think it smells like potential. Like it, it, it's it's taking something that that seems negative, and this this especially happens like it, it happens with sevens a lot in real time. Like they they are actually remembering events differently from the rest of us because they want to remember in a way that is m- more entertaining, more interesting. They 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 highlight parts of it that 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 are good, and they forget parts of it that were bad, so that they have a memory of an experience that is worthwhile. Passion's all about confidence. You know, if I didn't have any confidence, I never would have worn pajamas to my prom and ended up in jail the rest of that night. But you don't want to hear that story, so I ain't going to tell it. <laughs> it's a great story, that's, I'm that's, sure. That's like, There's a story here. Sevens in storytelling. That's another side, yeah? Yeah, because stories are entertaining, and if you remember stories in the, en- in the most entertaining way there is, then you can use them in the future to be entertaining. Stories can be flexible as well. Can't move people however you wish. Right. Coach, you got a favorite bath bomb? Creme brulee, honey. Honey, is that an ingredient or is that something you're just calling me right now? 
ingredient. Shoot, I was kind of hoping it was the other one. Yeah. Best scene for me is a scene where he is at a bar. He makes a bet in front of a dartboard. And this uh, the character is wrestling with not being accepted. He's wrestling with the loss of his family. And he enters somebody else's place of tension and grief and their marriage falling apart. And he makes a bet with a man who is the ex-husband of one of his friends. The Well, actually, the ex-husband looks like he has his stuff together because after the bet is made, he pulls out his special set of custom yeah. darts, yeah. begins throwing, you know, dimes. <laughs> I suppose it's even smaller than dimes on a dartboard, isn't it? He starts throwing very accurate shots yeah. and apparently has a quite a high score. Sure. But can I also just acknowledge as a as a side, I, I need to say this on mic once, that it's just so upsetting to watch the great Anthony Stewart head play an <laughs> asshole. So, Rebecca, it's time to be friends again. Especially since Bex and I are going to be sitting with you every week in that owner's box. And, um... Every week when they shove a camera in my face and ask me how I think you're doing, I will tell them it'll be relentless. It's really, really upsetting to watch Giles be that mean. Does it well. Hate watching that character. (laughs) They make this big bet, and of course the dumb American who just learned how to play darts steps up. This is clearly a hustle. Come on, <laughs> Tony. And he starts talking. You know, Rupert, guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. And then Ted throws a dog. Bullseye. So I get back in my car, and I'm driving to work, and all of a sudden, it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me, not a single one of them were curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out, and so they judged everything, and they judged everyone. And I realized that they're underestimating me. Who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions, you know? Questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? Throws another dart. Which I would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 to 16 when he passed away. Barbecue sauce. Throws the last dart. (laughs) Fire rocks. This is dripping with seven all all around it. I, I, yeah. what, what are your thoughts? Yep. I'll tell you mine. Absolutely. For one, the sort of showmanship mm-hmm. here, uh, like it, it's such a it's such a good reveal for him to be good at darts, like without saying I'm really good at darts. Like there's a like if this was a three in this space, they'd be like, I'm gonna make this bet, but I I need to warn you ahead of time. I'm really good at darts. Because they're naturally competitive and they want people to know how great they are. But the seven, it's a way better story for him to reveal that by yep. being good at darts. 
that line, be curious, not judgmental. I, I feel like I'd be curious to know how many sevens got that <laughs> tattooed after hearing him say that. You know? Like that that just feels like it it's like a quintessential seven kind of thought. Well, it's a virtue for him. I mean, you can imagine like Curious George is the seven. You yeah. know, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go on this adventure. I'm gonna find out what's out yep. there. I'm gonna go yep. like this is just it's so natural yeah. for sevens to be in that space. And he yep. understands other people aren't like me. Right. And judgmentalism is negative. And yes. why would we do this when we could do that instead? curiosity is so much more fun. We talked about reframing. This is the first time he mentioned that mentions that his father died when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And it is encapsulated in this beautiful, fun-filled memory. Yeah. We played darts together every day after school from age 10 to when I was 16. Taking in the the past with that filter of of optimism. Yeah. And joy. Like the the details of this story, he's only saying so much of this. What we learn is a devastating experience yeah. in his life. He's only using as much of that story as is necessary to complete the rest of the story. Yeah, yeah. That that reframe in the context of why he's good at darts. Like he's only going to give you as much as is necessary for this other thing and it's like a like a punchline almost the whole target of this is to pull the entire bar into this new adventure mm-hmm. this experience and all wrapped up in that is his friend is in misery and he's able to pull her out of that a place where she's not right. experiencing the pain of her ex-husband showing up at her soccer games anymore superpower right Mentioned yep. Mr. Keating and uh, Robin Williams' character in Dead Poet Society. Uh, so many uh, what scenes in this movie we could highlight. Just one of them comes to my mind, and it's it is him jumping up on top of his desk, saying to his class, "Why do I stand up here? Anybody? To feel taller? No. Thank you for playing, Mr. Dalton. I stand upon my desk to remind myself that we must constantly look at things in a different way." curiosity yep and and intentional constant ever-present reframing new movement you're in the same classroom day after day after day after day after day you're in this classroom now how do we see the classroom differently yeah constantly needing to to make sure that we're looking at things in a new way because that is how we escape mundane that's where he goes see the world looks very different from up here you don't believe me? Come see for yourselves. Come on. Come on. Just when you think you know something, you have to look at it in another way. Even though it may seem silly or wrong, you must try. Underneath all that is is the motive. I don't know that Mr. Keating's motive gets exposed in this way that he, I mean, he seems like a single man. Uh, he has returned to the school he grew up in but he is Peter Pan. Right. Like, we, we don't know what's really going on in his life. It's not really about him. And I think a lot of Sevens kind of prefer it that way. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They want to be, to have the freedom to be able to go where the wind takes them. 
and giving over himself like like he he's probably single he like lord knows where he lives what he's been doing in his life since in between being at the school and teaching at the school and and there's a part of him that likes that and reframes it in a way that makes it more attractive to him the image i have is kind of like mary poppins mary poppins shows up and rescues in a certain mm-hmm. kind of way but it's more of bringing order to a family that's you know it's been broken right similar here of the the these students who obviously they they have been not abandoned by their parents but a lot of the issues that the the students at his school have are of your parents don't care about you right and he steps into that space and so, and just elevates potential and meaning and beauty mm-hmm. and you know uh, sees the day kind of yeah. language for these are men looking for an anchor right or perhaps a a rocket to grab hold of all right. You want to do some eights? Yep, let's do it. Eights don't want to feel controlled. Eights, uh, the thing about eights, which a lot of us don't realize, is how fragile eights can feel. And to combat that, eights often exude a wall of energy, of anger mm-hmm. that seems to go out so that they can maintain control and not yeah. feel vulnerable. And I do want to say, like right from the outset, Eights, I know that you're really upset about the word fragile. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I've heard that word from eights uh, who are very healthy. And here's the best way to understand what's going on. Yep. Lots of great eight characters because uh, anger and that kind of intensity just translates wonderfully to film. Yep. We might mention Jules Winfield from Pulp Fiction, or a John McClane from Die Hard, or a Maximus from Gladiator. I was nervous that you were going to say Wednesday from uh, Netflix, and I, I, I think she's absolutely an eight. Oh, she no. Okay, well we can skip my 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 notes on this one because she is divorced from her feelings in a way that she is much more like Sherlock Holmes. Well, we can pause here, but. She is a thousand percent vengeance. We would have to have a de- whole debate about this. <laughs> <laughs> if you hear me scream, I just see my own kid in this character so, like so clearly. Like Wednesday Adams is Augie Cook. Mm. I mean, a lot of the great female heroes end up being eights, like uh, Ripley from Aliens or uh, Furiosa from Mad Max. Mm. The vengeance. The boundaries, the quick-wittedness, wonderful images. Uh, but my favorite to start with is Rocket Raccoon. And I suppose when talking about vulnerability, right. you can see it in this character. Mm-hmm. He's the product of this cybernetic experiment. It's all abuse. It's tearing him apart, putting him back together, making him into kind of partially a machine. And when he gains his freedom, he quickly gravitates towards weapons towards Mm -hmm. a vocation that just gives him ultimate control. He surrounds himself with this enormous creature. I am Groot. That has a ton of physical power, but won't ever uh, overwhelm him. Right. You know, um, it is a very loyal character with Groot. And he's a, he's a bounty hunter. Like that's, that's a perfect job for an eight. Why is that? (laughs) Uh, Because they're, they're solo. They're not really, they, like, bounty hunters aren't really beholden to 
a system for the most part. Like they're they they can kind of come and go as they please. They take whatever bounties they want, and and their job is to overpower someone else. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, all of that, you know, the anger and vulnerability that's inside of this character. It comes out in a scene where he's been drinking way too much. Peter Quill and Gamora enter into a bar and they see that the, a fight has broken out between one of the other characters, Drax and Groot and Rocket. And Quill runs in and he says, Yo, whoa, what are you doing? This Furman speaks of affairs he knows nothing about. That is true. He has no respect. That is also true. Hold on, on. Keep calling me Vermin, tough guy. You just want to laugh at me like everyone else. Rocket, you're drunk, all right? No one's laughing at you. He thinks of some stupid thing. He does. Well, I didn't ask to get made. I didn't ask to be torn apart and put back together over and over and turned into some, some little monster. Rocket, no one's calling you a monster. He called me vermin. She called me rodent. Let's see if you can laugh after five or six good shots. I love this as an eight line. Right. Very aggressive. Lots of anger. Best way to solve your anger problems with others is probably to shoot them in the face. See who's laughing now. Uh, what do you see here? Like he he doesn't mind being called names. He doesn't mind being uh, being insulted. But there's there's a special brand of insults that has to do with his vulnerability. The thing that he is memorizing and remembering are these things. Like he's right. pocketing these things and holding on to them for future action. Right. Like I will get you back for doing this to me. Yeah. Nobody care. He does not care when people call him a thief and a liar and an a-hole and like all of these other things. Yes. Like, like he's fine with those labels. But the minute you start attacking his, his the vulnerability that he tries to bury and hide behind big guns and intelligence it's exactly right when his intelligence is insulting he he speaks of things he knows nothing about just yeah it doesn't hurt me at all right he has no respect doesn't hurt me at all yep vermin rodent that's the thing that he cares that's, about that's a good one yeah we do a deep dive into michael jordan and the 90s chicago bulls in the uh mm -hmm. in the great set of podcasts we do with sean palmer on uh the last dance this is how Jordan is in the world. He remembers mm -hmm. the slights. He remembers what the negative things that people have said about him so that he can use them for energy and he'll just unleash on them in the, the future. It was It's a big right. part of his competitiveness. You gonna do this? Okay, fine. That's all I needed. That's all I needed for him to do that. And it, it became personal with me. I don't think that's what's going on with this character though. This character really has a radar for where they're going to get injured. Are these people trustworthy? Uh, should th these people be allowed into my circle mm -hmm. of confidence? And really, like, n no one should be allowed into my circle of confidence. Yeah. And now that I'm drunk, I'm going to start acting on the things that I've just been yelling about before. His circle of confidence is very small. It's him and Groot. Right. And that's a lot of this character's character development, I, you know, is allowing others into his life to care about him right the visceral description of his a very physical description of his pain 
It's not an emotional pain. It's a physical pain. I, I did not have control over my body. These other people did, and they tore me apart over and over and over again. That's the thing. It's not that somebody said something mean, hurt my feelings. It's a, it's a very body-centric thing, which also mm-hmm. highlights something that an eight would be aware of, their physical safety. Right. Bang. Well, another MCU eight would be one Thanos. Uh, Thanos ends up being for us kind of easy one to highlight because again, popular character, lots of eightness going on here. Yeah, the anger is expressed in through Thanos in a different kind of way. He seems fairly laid back and in control of himself mm-hmm. for the most part. Yeah, he's he is he is in control because he knows that he's the most powerful being in the universe and he's not vulnerable to anything. Yeah. And he only really loses control when he sees himself as vulnerable. Like there, there's a couple of instances where like, oh, wait, this fight is not going how I thought it was going to go. And he like, uh, I, I'm specifically remembering him uh, telling one of his generals to just start randomly shooting. Just mm-hmm. just like his giant ship is basically an umbrella over this fight and just start shooting everything. And the guy, the guy's like, but what about our, our troops? He does not care because he in that moment is not like he's a little bit vulnerable and he needs to come out swinging. Yep. And whoever gets hurt in that process doesn't matter so long as he gets back on top. Uh, identical scene from another eight villain who is uh, Edward the Longshanks who does that in Braveheart. Mm, yeah. Same image. Yep. Justice focused motive. He wants everything perfectly balanced. There is a justice orientedness here, which is true of eights, nines, and ones. Right. Because their sort of their their point of focus is about power and control and who has the power and and who's using it against people who don't have power and all of the things that go along with that. And so, and so there's, there's a huge radar for justice. There's a huge radar for bringing up the little guy and, and enacting justice. And because eights have the strength to offer it, they're, they're the ones that are willing to, if, if I have to be the one that enacts the justice, I'll do it. Just like Rocket, Thanos has an inner circle, a circle of trust. And it's just, Three people, arguably two people, uh, himself and his two daughters. Right. But he insists that his two daughters be strong. Right. Strong like he's strong. Right. And the abusiveness that comes out of this character, his unhealth, is really demonstrated in how he treats his, his two children, yeah? Right, yeah. He's he's not actually taking care of them. He is reshaping them to be how he thinks they should be. Right. And that is strong. His version of strength is very isolating uh, because he thinks he's the strongest. Mm-hmm. There's lots of language about how he's, you know, that he's a survivor. Uh, one of the movies ends with him saying, Fine. I'll do it myself. The isolating nature of his power mm-hmm. and getting the job done. He alone knows what the solution is right. to the universe's problems. Right. And and more importantly, he alone is has the strength to enact the solution. Yeah. Like th- this is a, a good example of part of how eights see themselves. Like I they are actually trying to figure out 
where they stand in relation to other people. And part of that involves pushing back to see who else is strong. Mm -hmm. And when you realize that you're the strongest one in the room, that's where it is, I guess. I'm the only one. Two big things worth noting here is that uh, where ones are going to engage justice with a right and wrong way of coming to justice, that's not how eights engage justice. There is much more of a my way thinking Right. With eights. You want to talk about that with this character? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're very quick thinkers and they are ready to in, enact the plan that they've already come up with while everyone else is still talking about it. And so, like, there's, like, why would we talk about right or wrong or all of these things? We all know what we're supposed to do and let's just do it. Like, they, they feel it in their gut that that like they know how things are supposed to be and they're they have the strength and the will to just do it. And and this is part of where they can roll over a lot of other people because because the rest of us don't see the world in that way. And so eights come to it and say, "Oh, but they're not even necessarily asking like what's happening. They're they're working and frustrated that other people aren't doing the same things that other people aren't exerting themselves in the same way yeah yeah at some point right before i think it's right before he kills one of his daughters he says something to the extent of the hardest choices require the strongest wills it will is you mentioned that as a word earlier but that's 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 this character it's Mm -hmm. like that kind of determination mixed with power mixed with like the the assertive energy there We'll wrap up with nines. Nines also long for control, like eights and ones, but they are going to withdraw to get it. Nines want to want to keep everything calm. And started with ones, and I'm a one. We'll end with nines, and TJ's a one. No, I'm a nine. TJ's a nine. <laughs> What's skinny on nines? Uh, nines are, uh, you mentioned control, and nines want to uh, be in control of their own lives, their own space, their... Um, and they want everything to be calm, like easy, harmonious. They want the people to get along and they want to get along with other people and they never want to fight about things because, uh, when they fight, they, you know, there might be separation from that and, and we're trying to avoid like, let's just let everybody calm down. Let's just stay all together. It's going to be all right. Undemanding come across as uncomplicated people. Mm-hmm. that calmness is the target in relationship. Lots of uh, great nine characters also. This is another one of those very physical motives, as it were, that translates to screen real clean. Uh, Bruce Banner is a nine, just yep. just trying to keep everything calm. Yep. Rocky seems to be a nine. Uh, one of my favorites is Daniel Day-Lewis's version of Lincoln has some great nine attributes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meryl Streep portrays nines frequently her version of Catherine graham in spielberg's the post is a stellar picture of someone who has like her business her family it's all getting like pulled apart and she's just trying to keep everything together uh and when we do the lord of the rings we spend a bunch of time on aragorn not wanting to engage but still wanting you know just to maintain the peace well let's end with some iconic portrayals and talk about jeff bridges in the big Lebowski and his version of the dude, the dude ends up being kind of that. I mean, this is almost an overly stereotyped 
version of a nine on film, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Dude's walking around in a bathrobe at the grocery store. He also doesn't want to wear pants. Right. Oh, I hate pants. <laughs> he uh, just trying to keep everything mellow. Yeah. Keeping his space the way he wants. Everybody just calm down. The the big impetus for him moving is that his space is affected. Right. Somebody has ruined his rug and that gets everything moving. And that's it. That's that's the whole thing is that he just wants his rug fixed. Got his atmospheric comforts. Got his Creens Clearwire revival tape. Got his bath. Got his cal- uh, candles. Obviously a weed smoker. Clearly. But he also has his, uh, what, he, he, what does he drink? He drinks white Russians. White Russians. He's got his routines, too. Got his routines. Like, that's, like, like the bowling thing. Like bowling, being part of a bowling league is like the ninest routine there is. Because when you're bowling, you're only active for about nine seconds every 17 minutes. Like that's that's what bowling is. It's amazing. I love bowling. Uh, but like he, he, he does this regularly and he has his drink that he always drinks and likes things consistent because there's no change. That's the, that's the motive for engaging the world is exactly that. Like the, yeah. has uh, the long story short, if you haven't seen the movie is there are some enforcers that break into his home thinking it's the home of somebody else with the same name. The thing is, is these enforcers pee on his rug and so he needs to get his rug replaced right because he doesn't have a job he doesn't have the money to pay for the rug but a justice oriented posture toward the world he's going to get the guy who has his same name who the enforcers were actually after to pay for his rug not a big deal i just (laughs) my rug was ruined because of you and i'd like you to pay for my to fix my rug so I'd love to play this and, and notice how aggressive the person he's speaking to is as well. And so there's the trying to keep things calm, not wanting to get into a fight, and yet notice how the nine plays plays his hand. Okay, sir, you're a Lebowski, I'm a Lebowski. That's terrific. But I am very busy, as I imagine you are. What can I do for you, sir? Uh, well, sir, it's... Uh... This rug I have, it really tied the room together. Uh, you told Brandt on the phone, he told me. Where do I fit in? Well, uh, they were they were looking for you, these two guys. Uh, you know, I'll they... say it again. You told Brandt on the phone, he told me. I know what happened, yes, yes. Oh, so you know that they were trying to piss on your rug. Did I urinate on your rug? You mean, did you personally come and pee on my rug? Hello! Do you speak English, sir? Parla usted inglés? I'll ask you again. Did I urinate on your rug? No, like I said, woo, or peed on my rug. I just want to understand this, sir. Every time a rug is micturated upon in this fair city, I have to compensate the person? So there's this tense situation. He's justice-oriented. He's moving to, to get something back that's very important to his atmosphere and, and feeling good in the world, yeah? Yeah. I love that, like, that specific rug. Like, it's not that he can't buy a new rug. The problem is that specific rug tied the whole room together. That's it. Like, there's a there's a sense of just knowing how the space is supposed to be for your own comfort 
that he is like that's what this movie is about and i love that because i i get it i feel that the energy of this whole movie is putting a person who just wants everything calm into very yep. uncalm situations and this yeah. would be one of them yeah, yeah this guy's yeah. yelling at him and not trying to understand where he's coming from the dude yep. says come on man i'm not trying to scam anybody here uh you know I, i'm just uh you're just looking for a handout like every other are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Oh, wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> You don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? <laughs> you want to comment on the nightness here? I say that... <laughs> oof. There, so the, the meandering speak, like the... Like he he gets distracted by his own language. That happens. That that is a way that nines talk. Like we we follow the rabbit trails in our own train of thoughts, and like he he's just trying. Like he's just trying to keep things easy. And this guy is clearly not having it. And like he's he still keeps going. Like like I I I don't even know what day it is. That's I I love that he doesn't know what day it is. At this point, Lebowski has insulted him. He's not going to give him the rug. And there's a tipping point for nines who appear to not have a lot of anger going on. But the anger is mm-hmm. there. It's, it's yeah. underneath all of this. And when it comes yeah. out, it comes out in spastic, strange ways. And you begin right. to see it as this, uh, as, as this dialogue closes. Well, I do work, sir. So if you don't mind... No, I do mind. Uh, the dude minds. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. I mean, your wife owes me... My wife is not the issue here. I hope that someday my wife will learn to live on her allowance, which is ample. But if she does not, that is her problem, not mine. Just as the rug is your problem. Just as every bum's lot in life is his own responsibility, regardless of who he chooses to blame. Your revolution is over, Mr. Lebowski. Condolences. The bomb's lost. My advice to you is to do what your parents did. Get a job, sir. The bombs will always lose. Do you hear me, Lebowski? The and then he shuts the door, and a servant comes up. How was your meeting, Mr. Lebowski? Okay. The old man told me to take any rug in the house. <laughs> Perfect. That's a conflict-free solution to this whole yep. situation. Yep. And and you know it's it's a little bit of vengeance. It's a little bit of like the it, like f- almost full knowledge that the big Lebowski is not even gonna notice. Yes, because he's such a jackass. <laughs> it's a, that's exactly right. I love that. I don't know that he just goes into the house and steals a rug. Oh yeah, no way. He he tried to resolve it the correct way. Yes. Yeah. There that there's the justice. Like yeah. so clearly you should make the world the way that it should be. Mm-hmm. Yep. The stereotype of nines and perhaps the hippy dippy peace loving sort don't want to work in the world. But notice 
peace-loving is about wanting the world to be a certain way. Right, right. I've been I've been working hard on on starting to use the word harmony a lot more yeah. than than peace or calm mm-hmm. lately, and it it has a lot to do with like like when things are big and busy and like there are a lot of nines living in New York City and and many of them I'm sure love it. Like like serenity is not necessarily the goal here. It's everything working the way it should be. It's it's ease, not necessarily calm. And ease can include a lot of activity, a lot of sometimes even chaos. Uh, chaos is fine if that's what the situation calls for. It's it's the ease of being pre- being in whatever's happening the way it's supposed to be. Harmony. And yeah, he's he's not looking to steal a rug. He's not like it that's not what this is about. The the thing that he's trying to solve is to restore like they peed on my rug because of you. You should that like this is your responsibility. You'll notice I suppose this comes out in a lot of these characters where for the one, it's my view of right and wrong, or for the three, it's my goal, or for the five, it's here's my data, or for the six, it's here's my anxiety, or for the seven, it's here's my adventure, for the eight, it's my way, and this is how justice is done. Here it is for the nine, it's like my version of shalom Mm -hmm. is what is being elevated and insisted on through the ways that, that nines engage with the world. Right. Love to end with one of my favorite scenes from Rocky. This isn't a well-known scene, but I think it captures a ton of what's going on in the heart of a nine. Rocky wins a fight. This is right right at the beginning of the first movie. Comes in the next day. Hey, yo, Mike. Where's my lock? Whose stuff is this in my lock? Stepper stuff. It ain't your locker no more. What are you talking about? It ain't my lock. It's been my locker for six years. Where's my gear? Mickey told me to bag it and hang it. You put my stuff on Skid Row. I've been in that locker for six years, and you put my stuff in a bag on Skid Row? Mickey tells me what to do. I got to do it, right, Rock? Where is he? He's outside working with Depper. He's in a bad mood. So am I. Rocky's a professional boxer. Mm-hmm. And as we just said, his his uh, atmospheres, the his comforts, his what did you call it? His environments have been completely upset. Yeah, the the issue at hand here is that this is his locker. Like he could probably just get another locker. That'd probably be fine. He he's really upset that like this is my locker that I've been in for six years, and you changed that, and now I'm mad. My rug, my locker. These are the th- these are the things that make my life stable, dependable. Yep. And there's change clearly taking place here. Yep. Rocky is a huge man. He will go, f- you know, head to head with the champion of the world. By the end of the movie. Right. So clearly he's going to throw down when he confronts the owner of the establishment. Hey, Mick. Shut up. Hey, how you feeling, Mick? (laughs) (laughs) What do you want? How you feeling today? What? I said, how you feeling? What are you, a doctor or something? You got problems today? Never mind my problem. What's your problem? My problem is I've been talking to your man, Mike. I want to know how come I've been put out of my lock. Because Dipper needed it. Dipper's a contender. He's a climber. Do you know what you are? What? A tomato. Yeah, let's face it. I run a business here, not a goddamn soup kitchen. Did you fight last night? Yeah. Did you win? Yeah, I won K1 a second. Yeah, who'd you fight? Spider Rico. (laughs) 
He's a bum. You think everybody I fight is a bum? Well, ain't they? You know whose presence doesn't matter? Bums. <laughs> People who fight bums. People that don't work and bums. That was yep. that's another thing with Lebowski. Is is yep. he's saying your presence in this world doesn't matter because you don't work. Yep. You got heart, but you fight like a goddamn ape. Nothing special about you. You never got your nose busted. Well, leave it that way. Nice and pretty, and what's left of your mind. You know, Mick, I think I'm gonna go take the steam. You know why? Because I did real good last night. And you should have seen me, Big Dean. You should have seen me too. Hey, kid. You ever think about retiring? No. You think about it. Yeah. All right, time. <laughs> and then it's like he was going in to throw down. Not only did he not throw down, but he like the first thing he said was, "Hey, how are you?" Just <sighs> goes in and is told, "You don't matter." This is a huge part of the the movie is whether right. or not Rocky matters. Right. And as he's walking away, Dipper, who just took over his locker, says, hey. Well, I dig your locker, man. <laughs> and Rocky walks off. Just leaves. Because he doesn't want to fight, man. Which is also, I think, part of why he's gotten this far in his boxing career without like really making any kind of waves. Yeah. Because he's not the kind of aggressive or competitive. Like, as a nine, he's he's... He's doing something that he's good at, but he's not looking to be the best, right. you know? Like, even the the storyline of Rocky, he's still not looking to be the best. He's just trying to prove that he exists. Right. Actually, if you go to the first scene, it's him fighting in this church uh, building, and the guy he's fighting with, Spider Rico, headbutts him, mm. uh, technically disqualifying him, Right. And so that's how he actually wins that fight. Sure. But when he headbutts him, like the rage in Rocky yeah. all of a sudden mm-hmm. unleashes at that point. You're exactly right. Like he's just doing his thing. Yep. But when somebody insults him and at that level, it comes out in a very violent way where he not only knocks him down, he gets on top of him and starts pummeling him, right. you know, while he's on his back. Mm-hmm. And that image, the, the anger spilling out again in these awkward fashions. Well, I think there's there's uh, this, and uh, I'll I'll draw a line back to Big Lebowski as well. That there's there's a level of like we talked about justice, and and we talked about that particularly with eights, nines, and ones, and and like control is also a big part of this. And and the thing that sets these guys off is not. The fight. It's not arguments. It's not. It's not people putting them down. The thing that sets them off is the unfairness. It's mm-hmm. it's lack of justice. The the when Rocky loses it, it's because the other guy cheated. Yeah, there, there you go. That's right. When when the dude decides to steal this jackass's rug, it's because the guy treated him like crap. Because not not only did he say no, but he was so dismissive that like it's he and and invoked that like you need to get a job and work hard and stop blaming other people for your problem, mm-hmm. making other people responsible for your problems. When that person who said those words is the one responsible for the dude losing his rug. It a huge double standard because he describes the rhythms of his wife who also doesn't work and has a right. budget that she can spend and all the rest. Right. 
freeloader. So like the the lack of justice is the thing that sets them off. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a that's a really telling thing about nines. It's like usually when I lose my cool which has happened quite a lot in my life, and I'm not usually not very proud of it, but like it has more to do with a lack of justice. Mm. And it's usually something that affects me personally, but it's still like it, it's not about the fight. It's about something deeper that I don't know how to handle. That's a great word. And it just like spills out. I don't know that we've talked about that before. That's a, that's a great thing to put, put your thumb on. Last nine thing on this is. Rocky clearly has a comfort object that he discovers, not object, but through this movie, and it is Adrian, mm -hmm. this person who comes into his life who actually does make him feel strong, who is so physical, Rocky. Like, he's obviously a big person. He's a fighter. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot of the body type going on there in terms of engaging right. the world physically, understanding who he is in the world physically, and yet he doesn't want to necessarily fight people right. emotionally in you know, it's, it's, that's a very, it's, it feels like a, you know, what, a, it feels like a contradiction, but it's not. Right. Be because if you, if you look at, at Rocky and ha and his sort of place in the world at, at the start of this film and as, as he's moving toward his sort of changing moment, like he's a professional fighter, but he's not really like doing the things with his body that, that the best fighter would be doing. Yeah. Very intuitive. And he's not sort of engaged with his body in that way. Like, yeah. he could be the best if he were aware of what his body was actually capable of. Yeah, and that's what Mickey is kind of saying. You could have you could have been right. great because you had heart, but you didn't put the work in. Right. He's also, he works professionally as a bruiser, you know, which again doesn't seem like somebody who's trying to keep things calm. But he hunts people down in order to get money for his mob boss, boss, mm -hmm. and... When he finds them, he's like, you need to pay up or else I'm going to break your legs. You know, they lets him go. And then he gets a bunch of crap from his boss for not actually breaking the guy's legs. Right. He's like, no, he's right. going to pay you next Tuesday or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the thing with Adrian at the end is he goes out to fight the champion of the world. He's really concerned with her and whether or not she's going to leave. And he leaves uh, to go fight that last fight saying to her you know, you're looking very great today you know that hmm? comments on how great she looks i gotta go now but uh don't you leave town huh he wants his presence to matter wants to prove that he's worthy of her affection and he thinks he can do it by suffering he says if i can you know nobody's ever gone the distance with apollo creed right that becomes his goal he doesn't even want to win the fight his whole goal is i just want to endure punishment right like nobody else has and if i can endure to the end then i'm worthy right as i was thinking it really don't matter if i lose this fight it really don't matter if this guy opens my head either so all I want to do is go to distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, you see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. And that's how the end of works is. And it, it, that's also, I think that's a, a very nine thing that like, yeah, I'll just take it. It's fine. That's it. I'll come. I'll come out on the end in in the end of it. I'll I'll just sit back and take it. 
It's a very physical, passive way of, of being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Letting the world happen to you. There it is. Yeah. When he does undergo the trial, as it were, when he goes through the 15 rounds, his his eyes have been uh, hit so hard he can't see. Right. So he doesn't know if the girl is still there. Right. And that's how the, the movie ends, is with him yelling into a microphone, Adrian. But it's, it's, it's such a beautiful <laughs> image on his breath. Here it's chaos. Rocky, you went the distance. You went the 15 rounds. How do you feel? All right, and Thor. What are you thinking about when that buzzer's on uh, for that line? What do you think about when the 15th round when you're coming out? Adrian! He has endured, but he doesn't know. Right. That, like, did he do enough for her to, to stick? And... The, the focus on the thing that's actually important to him. Like, he's he's surrounded by, by people that are cheering him on and, mm-hmm. and cameras, and, like, it's a big deal. He just did something really significant, and, and he's honing in on the one thing that he actually wants. It's a lot of people that were using him, though, and he knows he's being used. Right. But that girl might love him. Right. What makes it doubly powerful, the, 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 the ending of that movie is just gorgeous, worth just YouTubing just to watch it on a loop for a couple times. But the, she is established as being incredibly shy. Mm-hmm. So when she essentially runs through a crowd to get into the ring and to get into to his presence. Adrian! Adrian! Rocky! Adrian! Rocky! Hey, I love you! I love you! Just a wonderful give and take. Yeah, that that speaks volumes to him. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I got on nines. Cool. We went around the circle, my brother. We did it. Nine types. I hope that's a, a great intro for you. We have started a second. Well, it's a third. We've started a third <laughs> podcast feed called Movie Typing. Very easy to find. Just Google Movie Typing Enneagram uh, into Spotify or into iTunes. It'll pop up. It's on all the search engines, in fact. And uh, we, we have at least 48 uh, episodes right now that are up. Uh, well worth diving into if you get into characters and their types. So a couple of quick things. We'll release a episode about once a month on a new deep dive into into characters that TJ and I really dig. Uh, you can find all of the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. Events that we have, ways to jump into finding your own personality type, and as always, stars, reviews. These are always appreciated and help people find our work. Uh, and that's what I got. You got anything else? I got nothing, man. He's TJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. I'm Jeff Cook. We'll see you next time. Stay to the chopper! I'm drinking your milkshake. I could have been a contender. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. That was much longer than our first episode. <laughs> in our defense, we only did four in the first one. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley.